You are listening to the Philosophy Podcast. Here we will periodically showcase audio renditions of great works from philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Nietzsche, and more. For a complete listing of all the Learn Out Loud podcasts with links to subscribe, please visit us at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. Thank you for listening. The Critique of Practical Reason by Immanuel Kant Published in 1781 Edited by Arthur Mee and J. A. Hamerton. 1. Analytic of Practical Reason Practical principles are propositions containing a general determination of the will. They are maxims, or subjective propositions, when expressing the will of an individual, objective when they are valid expressions of the will of rational beings generally. Practical principles, which presuppose an object of desire, are empirical or experimental and supply no practical laws. Reason, in the scope of a practical law, influences the will not by the medium of pleasure or pain. All rational beings necessarily wish for happiness, but they are not all agreed either as to the means to attain it, or as to the objects of their enjoyment of it. Thus, subjective practical principles can only be reckoned as maxims, never as law. A rational being ought not to conceive that his individual maxims are calculated to constitute universal laws and to become the basis of universal legislation. To discover any law which would bring all men into harmony is absolutely impossible. One of the problems of practical reason is to find the law which can necessarily determine the will, assuming that the will is free. The solution of this problem is to be found in action according to the moral law, We should so act that the maxim of our will can always be valid as a principle of universal legislation. Experience shows how the moral consciousness determines the freedom of the will. Suppose that someone affirms of his inclination for sensual pleasure that he cannot possibly resist temptation to indulgence. If a gallows were erected at the place where he is tempted, on which he should be hanged immediately for satiating his passions, would he not be able to control his inclination? We need not long doubt what would be his answer. But ask him if this sovereign commanded him to bear false witness against an honorable man, under penalty of death, whether he would hold it possible to conquer his love of life. He might not venture to say what he would choose, but he would certainly admit that it is possible to make choice. Thus he judges that he can choose to do a thing because he is conscious of moral obligation, and he thus recognizes for himself a freedom of will which, but for the moral law, he would never have been conscious. We obtain the exact opposite of the principle of morality if we adopt the principle of personal private happiness as the determining motive of the will. This contradiction is not only logical, but also practical. For morality would be totally destroyed were not the voice of reason as clear and penetrating in relation to the will, even to the most ordinary men. If one of your friends, after bearing false witness against you, attempted to justify his base conduct by enumerating the advantages which he had thus secured for himself and the happiness he had gained, and by declaring that thus he performed a true human duty, you would either laugh him or scorn or turn from him in horror. And yet, if a man acts for his own selfish ends, you have not the slightest objection to such behavior. Morality and Happiness The maxim of self-love simply advises. The law of morality commands. There is a vast difference between what we are advised and what we are obliged to do. No practical laws can be based on the principles of happiness, even on that of universal happiness, 
for the knowledge of this happiness rests on merely empirical or experimental data, every man's ideas of it being conditioned only on his individual opinion. Therefore, this principle of happiness cannot prescribe rules for all rational beings. But the moral law demands prompt obedience from everyone, and thus even the most ordinary intelligence can discern what should be done. Everyone has power to comply with the dictates of morality, but even with regard to any single aim, it is not easy to satisfy the vague precept of happiness. Nothing can be more absurd than a command that everyone should make himself happy, for one never commands anyone to do what he inevitably wishes to do. Finally, in the idea of our practical reason, there is something which accompanies the violation of a moral law, namely its demerit, with the consciousness that punishment is a natural consequence. Therefore, punishment should be connected in the idea of practical reason with crime as a consequence of the crime by the principles of moral legislation. Analysis of Principles The practical material principles of determination constituting the basis of morality may be thus classified. 1. Subjective. External. Education. The civil constitution. Internal. Physical feeling. Moral feeling. 2. Objective. Internal. Perfection. External. Will of God. The subjective elements are all experimental or empirical and cannot supply the universal principle of morality, though they are expounded in that sense by such writers as Montaigne, Mandeville, Epicurus, and Hutcheson. But the objective elements, as enunciated and expounded by Wolfe and the Stoics, and by Crucius and other theological moralists, are founded on reason. For absolute perfection as a quality of things, that is, God himself, can only be thought of by rational concepts. The conception of perfection in a practical sense is the adequacy of a thing for various ends. As a human quality, and so internal, this is simply talent, and what completes it is skill. But supreme perfection in substance, that is, God himself, and therefore external, considered practically, is the adequacy of this being for all purposes. All these principles above classified are material, and so can never furnish the supreme moral law. For even the divine will can supply a motive in the human mind because of the expectation of happiness from it. Therefore, the formal practical principle of the pure reason insists that the mere form of a universal legislation must constitute the ultimate determining principle of the will. Here is the only possible practical principle which is sufficient to furnish categorical imperatives, that is, practical laws which make action a duty. It follows from this analytic that pure reason can be practical. It can determine the will independently of all merely experimental elements. This is a remarkable contrast between the working of the pure speculative reason and that of the pure practical reason. In the former, as was shown in the treatise on that subject, a pure sensible intuition of time and space made knowledge possible, though only of objects of the senses. On the contrary, the moral law brings before us a fact absolutely inexplicable from any of the data of the world of sense, and the entire range of our theoretical use of reason indicates a pure world of understanding, which even positively determines it and enables us to know something of it, namely, a law. We must observe the distinction between the laws of a system of nature to which the will is subject and of a system of nature which is subject to the will. In the former, the objects cause the ideas which determine the will. In the latter, the objects are caused by the will. Hence, causality of the will has its determining principle exclusively in the faculty of pure reason, 
which may therefore also be called a pure practical reason. The moral law is a law of the causality through freedom, and therefore of the possibility of a supersensible system of nature. It determines the will by imposing on its maxim the condition of a universal legislative form, and thus it is able for the first time to impart practical reality to reason, which otherwise would continue to be transcendent when seeking to proceed speculatively with its ideas. Thus the moral law induces a stupendous change. It changes the transcendent use of reason into the imminent use. And in result, reason itself becomes by its ideas an efficient cause in the field of experience. Hume and Skepticism It may be said of David Hume that he initiated the attack on pure reason. My own labors in the investigation of this subject were occasioned by his skeptical teaching, for his assault made them necessary. He argued that without experience it is impossible to know the difference between one thing and another. That is, we can know a priori, and therefore the notion of a cause is fictitious and illusory, arising only from the habit of observing certain things associated with each in succession of connections. On such principles we can never come to any conclusion as to causes and effects. We can never predict a consequence from any of the known attributes of things. We can never say of any event that it must necessarily have followed from another that is, that it must have had an antecedent cause. And we could never lay down a rule derived even from the greatest number of observations. Hence we must trust entirely to blind chance, abolishing all reason, and such a surrender establishes skepticism in an impregnable citadel. Mathematics escaped Hume because he considered that its propositions were analytical, proceeding from one determination to another, by reason of identity contained in each. But this is not really so, on the contrary, they are synthetical, the results depending ultimately on the assent of observers as witnesses to the universality of the propositions. So Hume's empiricism leads inevitably to skepticism even in this realm. My investigations led me to the conclusion that the objects with which we are familiar are by no means things in themselves, but are simply phenomena, connected in a certain way with experience, so that without contradiction they cannot be separated from that connection. Only by that experience can they be recognized. I was able to prove the objective reality of the concept of cause in regard to objects of experience and to demonstrate its origin from pure understanding without experimental or empirical sources. Thus I first destroyed the source of skepticism and then the resulting skepticism itself. And thus was subverted the thorough doubt as to whatever theoretic reason claims to perceive as well as the claim of Hume that the concept of causality involves something absolutely unthinkable. Good and Evil By a concept of practical reason, I understand the representation to the mind of an object as an effect possible to be produced through freedom. The only objects of practical reason are good and evil. For by good, we understand an object necessarily abhorred, the principle of reason actuating the mind in each sense. In the common use of language, we uniformly distinguish between the good and the pleasant, the evil and the unpleasant good and evil being judged by reason alone. The judgment on the relation of means to ends certainly belongs to reason, but good or evil always implies only a reference to the will, as resolved by the law of reason, to make something its object. Thus, good and evil properly relate to actions, not to personal sensations. So if anything is to be reckoned simply good or evil, it can only be so estimated by the way of acting. Hence, only the maxim of the will, and consequently the person himself, 
can be called good or evil, not the thing itself. The Stoic was right. Even though he might be laughed at, who, during violent acts of gout, exclaimed, Pain! I will never admit thou art an evil. What he felt was indeed what we call a bad thing, but he had no reason to admit that any evil attached thereby to himself, for the pain did not in the least detract from his personal worth, but only from that of his condition. If a single lie had been on his conscience, it would have humiliated his soul, but pain seemed only to elevate it when he was not conscious of having deserved it as a punishment for any unjust deed. The rule of judgment, subject to the laws of pure practical reason, is this. Ask yourself whether if the action you propose were to happen by a natural system of law, of which you yourself were a part, you could regard it as possible by your own free will. In fact, everyone does decide by this rule whether actions are morally good or evil. 2. Dialectic of Practical Reason The Immortality of the Soul Pure practical reason postulates the immortality of the soul, for reason, in the pure and practical sense, aims at the perfect good, sumum bonum, and this perfect good is only possible on the supposition of the soul's immortality. It is the moral law which determines the will, and in this will, the perfect harmony of the mind with the moral law is the supreme condition of the sumum bonum. The principle of the moral destination of our nature, that only by endless progress can we come into full harmony with the moral law, is of the greatest use, not only for fortifying the speculative reason, but also with respect to religion. In default of this, either the moral law is degraded from its holiness, being represented as indulging our convenience, or else men strain after an unattainable aim, hoping to gain absolute holiness of will, thus losing themselves in fanatical theosophic dreams utterly contradicting self-knowledge. For a rational, but finite, being the only possibility is an endless progression from the lower to the higher degrees of perfection. The infinite being, to whom time condition is nothing, sees in this endless succession the perfect harmony with the moral law. The Existence of God The pure practical reason must also postulate the existence of God as the necessary condition of the attainment of the summum bonum. As the perfect good can only be promoted by accordance of the will with the moral law, so also the summum bonum is possible only through the supremacy of an infinite being possessed of causality, harmonizing with morality. But the postulate of the highest derived good, sometimes denominated the best world, coincides with the postulate of a highest original good, or of the existence of God. We now perceive why the Greeks could never solve their problem of the possibility of the summum bonum, because they made the freedom of the human will the only and all-sufficient ground of happiness, imagining there was no need for the existence of God for that end. Christianity alone affords an idea of the summum bonum, which answers fully to the requirement of practical reason. That idea is the kingdom of God. The holiness which the Christian law requires makes essential an infinite progress. But just for that reason it justifies in man the hope of endless existence. And it is only from an infinite supreme being, morally perfect, holy, good, and with an omnipotent will, that we can hope by accord with his will to attain the summum bonum, which the moral law enjoins on us as our duty to seek ever to attain. The moral law does not enjoin on us to render ourselves happy, but instructs us how to become worthy of happiness. Morality must never be regarded as a doctrine of happiness, or direction how to become happy, its province being to inculcate the rational condition of happiness, not the means of attaining it. 
God's design in creating the world is not primarily the happiness of the rational beings in it, but the summum bonum, which super-adds another condition to that desire of human beings, namely, the condition of deserving such happiness. That is to say, the morality of rational beings is a condition which alone includes the rule, by observing which they can hope to participate in happiness at the hand of an all-wise creator. The highest happiness can only be conceived as possible under conditions harmonizing with the divine holiness. Thus they are right to make the glory of God the chief end of creation. For beyond all else that can be conceived, that glorifies God which is the most estimable thing in the whole world, honor for His command and obedience to His law, when to this is added His glorious design to crown so beauteous an order of things with happiness corresponding. Conclusion Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing wonder and awe, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. I need not search for them and vaguely guess concerning them, as if they were veiled in darkness or hidden in the infinite altitude. I see them before me and link them immediately with the consciousness of my existence. The former begins from the spot I occupy in the outer world of sense and enlarges my connection with it to a boundless extent with worlds upon worlds and systems of systems. The second begins from my invisible self, my personality, and places me in a truly infinite world traceable only by the understanding with which I perceive I am in a universal and necessary connection, as I am also thereby with all those visible worlds. This view infinitely elevates my value as an intelligence by my personality, in which the moral law reveals to me a life independent of the animal and even the whole material world, and reaching by destiny into the infinite. But though admiration may stimulate inquiry, it cannot compensate for the want of it. The contemplation of the world, beginning with the most magnificent spectacle possible, ended in astrology, and morality, beginning with the noblest attribute of human nature, ended in superstition. But after reason was applied to careful examination of the phenomena of nature, a clear and unchangeable insight was secured into the system of the world. We may entertain the hope of a like good result in treating of the moral capacities of our nature by the help of the moral judgment of reason.